0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And we're joined today by Lawrence Cox, who is Cox, excuse me, who's an editor of the Handbook of Research Methods and Applications for Social Movements, uh, new out from Edward Elger Publishing. Lawrence, welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Stephen, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so I wonder if we might begin by having you tell folks a little bit about who you are and maybe introduce your co-editors uh, and what it is that brought you to this project
1: sure okay so um i'm a professor of sociology in the national university of ireland maynooth and i came to that from being an activist Uh, i fell into academia as a day job uh, and so wound up researching social movements because that's what i was mostly doing Uh, and that's from my side where this book has come from uh, it's co-edited with three people, so uh, Alberto Arriba Lozano, uh, who is uh, a long-standing activist researcher, has been involved in a lot of movement learning projects in Spain, in South Africa, uh, in Peru, is currently back in Spain. Um, Anya Shulka, um who is a uh, Polish activist and researcher who used to do a lot of social movement stuff around anti-fracking and Occupy and is currently studying the impact of space programs on the communities (laughs) where they're based, which is amazing. That's quite a twist. What a thing to be studied. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Sutapa uh, Ciatopadhyay, who is a migrant researcher who's worked in many countries. Uh, studying uh, migration, squatting, uh, and so on, and is now in Saint Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, in Canada.
0: Terrific! Um, so uh, this is a big book—thirty-two uh, chapters, broken into three sections, with about, by my count, on the neighborhood of fifty contributors. Um, it's so monster, yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> in the best possible way. We should tell people. <laughs> Um, So I wonder if what we might do is just simply sort of move through section by section. Part one um, is about how different researchers think about social movements and research uh, in them, or to quote, why are we doing this and what do we think it is? Uh, Part two uh, is sort of about methodology, different means by which uh, people undertake collecting data and analyzing it regarding movements, or how do we do this? Uh, and then part three is the applications bit. What is all of this good for? So why don't we start with section one? Tell us a little bit about what you think uh, sort of is most useful to take away, whether you think there are uh, common themes or patterns in in that or maybe what's most novel or talk about about a chapter or two that you think is most particularly interesting.
1: Okay. Wow. So or do something have,
0: entirely different if you <laughs> would well, prefer. Let
1: me, let me start just by stepping back one sure. stage, which sure. is, what are we doing when we wind up looking at a research methods handbook? Mm. Uh, because there's two different kinds of challenges that go, uh, go along with each other. And one of them is very, very often when people set out to do research, whether they're based in social movements or they're based in academia, they've actually got very few models available, even typically people who are doing this from academia uh, when they're applying for funding they often don't have university libraries available the supervisors or people they're talking to may not themselves be specialists they've typically never done any particular training in it so often people have got very few ideas about how to do it And the same is typically true in movements that people will have heard of one or two ways of doing things, but they really don't have much of an idea of the range of possibilities. So one big motivation for this book was to actually just show the richness of the different ways that people actually do it. So that's one of the kind of background steps. Other one, I guess, is that studying social movements is kind of strange in academia because typically if you're in a space like social policy and not so sure how this is in the states but certainly in ireland you're actually mixing quite a lot with people who are involved in policy making are involved in lobbying are in interest groups are in ngos you're bringing them in to talk and so on it's very much part of the picture and that's not different if it's nursing or architecture international relations but there's A whole trend in social movement studies over the last 40 years, which has been very much to kind of make it a pure academic space where we stand outside of social movements different to them. we don't owe them anything there's no question of how useful is this there's just these are very interesting people and events to build academic careers around
0: and one is not meant to have a a position (laughs) on whether the movement should succeed or not or whether you align yourself with its mission or values
1: so we really wanted to put activist knowledge, practical knowledge on a par with academic knowledge and of course to recognize that activists theorize, they even do research some of the time and to speak to people who are coming from different directions rather than frame it as though we are looking for people from Good schools, quote unquote, who've gone to elite universities, who are making a career and want something that is all about looking shiny and proper and scientific and neutral or whatever it is. So, those are the two background thoughts. And yeah, in the first section, which is not always common in research handbooks on social movements there aren't that many, there hasn't been one for a decade that I know of in English. Uh, in the first section, we asked people, uh, different authors, some experienced researchers, some new, some activists, some more on the scientific end. What do you think is actually going on when we do research? What is the politics of knowledge? What does that look like if you're a feminist? What does it look like if you're indigenous? What does it look like if you're doing research in very repressive situations? How do you think about the part of the world that you're in? So we have a bunch of researchers and activists from Southeast Asia talking all about what's going on when people do research in movements in Southeast Asia. Not just for the benefit of Southeast Asian readers, but because if we're in the global North, we often tend to imagine that our situation is just normal. We don't see what's specific about it, and so we don't think about it. So, we have all of those kinds of things going on. Uh, we have other chapters there. And apologies, I am going to look because, as you said, there are 32 <laughs> chapters it's, here.
0: It's a lot to keep track of. <laughs> it's a
1: lot to keep track of. Uh, how do we research global movements? How do we think about learning in movements? how do we adopt a view of methodological pluralism that there are actually different legitimate ways of doing this?
0: What does it mean to think about from a Marxist framework I thought was a particularly interesting approach as well?
1: Well, that's a fantastic chapter actually. So, you know, John Krinsky, who's very much involved in housing movements around New York, um, really stepped back into what are the kinds of challenges that people run into when they are thinking about building a housing movement? Because of course, there's an awful lot of theory, and this is one reason why movements need research, is actually learning by doing yourself when you're up against the property market in New York City. Yeah, it's exhausting, it's destructive, So anything that you can learn from other people, anything that you can think out theoretically, that you can research is hugely, hugely important. Even like just his first example, how do you think about what level does this problem exist at? Is it because there's a bad landlord? Is it because we need to change New York legislation? Is it financial capitalism and how do we deal with that?
0: I mean one of the, the the many things that that pops up for me over and over again in the chapters is sort of the the ways in which by being conscious about sort of the academy and movements, um, it really does highlight the ways in which, right you would think, well, what is you know, some sort of Marxist analysis? How is that useful? Well, it turns out, as you just articulated, very useful if you're trying to think strategically, right is the nature of the problem that we are confronting, and where sort of given institutional power structures can we most effectively direct our energy, right? That can really increase the chances of that movement success. In a similar vein, I um, love very much sort of the discussion about movements as learning communities themselves. I wonder if you might say just a word or two about that.
1: Well, that's something obviously that uh, Alberto very much comes from, as do I, which is to say, people in movements are smart. They think about what they're doing, or at least they are at least as smart as the average academic.
0: (laughs) Well, well, I'm not sure whether that's a compliment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's a low
1: bar sometimes, but in practical terms, often much smarter. And there is a lot of discussion going on. It doesn't maybe take the form of peer reviewed articles, but it does uh, face a much more brutal reality check a lot of the time and i mean this struck me way back when i was starting my phd so i'd been with the far left of the german green party and my god did they theorize (laughs) yeah and they wrote books from different angles different factions these uh, sort of walls of text uh, all about what they were doing and I got into a PhD program and I was told, well, why would you even read that stuff? What you should be reading is what British and American authors in English have written about these people. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> are you really sure? So when you think about it that way, you, you have a bridge to work between Um, activist thought and academic thought, which is to say, yeah, both of these things, there are learning processes, there are moments of teaching, moments of research, moments of discussion, moments of theorizing. And typically, um, you know, like Colin Barker once said, activism is parasitic on a lot of this thought. If people in movements were not thinking, who would we interview? What is the raw material in that kind of classic, ethnographic, I'm going to observe a few events and meetings and do a bunch of qualitative interviews and read some documents. If people in those movements were not learning and thinking, what would we actually work off? Not to say that,
0: yeah, so that feels like a, a good segue to sort of uh, turn to the, the the more sort of of practical uh, data collection and analysis. When people are studying movements, what are they doing? What 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 constitutes the data there, and and what kind of range is it? And how we should think about what form of data collection and analysis is most appropriate for the particular context that we are in?
1: Right, so. Let me step back one step and say Mm -hmm. something else about the book, which is up to now, to my knowledge, every research handbook in social movements has been written from the global north. In fact, they have all come from Western Europe or North America, and they have very much centered those kinds of experiences so one thing that we really set ourselves to do along with having activist voices having university researchers who are in dialogue with movements was to have as many experiences as possible from the global south now that's a big challenge right despite all our efforts we did not manage to get it even to 50 50. And that's not uncommon, there are all sorts of resource reasons, institutional reasons why voices from the Global North uh, are easier to come by. We got to close to 50% from the Global South, particularly uh, quite a few Indigenous voices. That's really important because you're talking about sometimes extraordinarily different experiences, what movements mean are very different things, the kinds of considerations that you have to have are different. And then, of course, the Global South is vast and incredibly diverse. But if you only present um, situations from Western Europe and North America, you're actually not doing the researcher a great service because they are going in assuming oh it'll be like this and then suddenly it's not yeah Yeah. so to bring out that diversity of experiences and to bring out the diversity of things that people actually do because when you go to a good social movements conference if you edit a social movements journal, you find out there is an incredible creativity responsivity to context to movement and so on in good research but very often when we write handbooks it becomes much more kind of canonizing much more normative much more about dressing up to get the nod from the senior academics to look shiny and so on so we deliberately tried let's have as much variety as possible let's not write it that first we have the quantitative and then we have the qualitative (laughs) right and let's ask everybody we had to push some people on this tell us about a research experience of yours because that frees up the reader so tell us what were you trying to study how did you go about it and then the reader can is a little bit more free they're not going oh i have to try and embody this abstract notion it's okay you've just shown me what it was like for you to do a phd or to do something at much more advanced stage that frees me up to think and yet there are some extraordinary pieces there so you know the one that we start the section with yeah just my heart opened reading it so this is from the um sncc uh, student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? Legacy mm-hmm. Project, where they worked together with a uh, university to do uh, an oral history project, uh, obviously one of many around SNCC and the civil rights movement, but with an explicit goal of speaking to the movements of today. And they are so good at talking about the practicality, say, of how to host a meeting that actually respects people, that makes them feel welcome, that creates a space that they enjoy being in. And of course, this is not an added extra. This is not just about being nice. It's about intellectually creating a space in which people feel able to say what they really think rather than talking in a very narrow way to outsiders. And then where they are also really making that added effort to say, you know, what does this mean for people today? So you need to bring people there into a, a fuller, richer environment. So that, that for me was one of the most powerful chapters to read. I should say, I know a number of the authors in other chapters. so. You know, that that was particularly surprising because I didn't know these authors at all. But we've got chapters, say, about using visual research methods with indigenous social movements in Guatemala. We've got a fantastic one about what to do uh, with Adivasi narratives. Uh, in eastern India, where people are actually saying quite ambiguous things, or they're contradicting themselves from one time to the next, very different from what we sometimes expect where we imagine the interview, I don't know, it's like a court case or something, people state their position once and for all, and of course that's not true. Yeah, and we know it if we're working with people over a long period of time that they will say very different things for a range of different reasons. There's some fantastic work on how to do surveys within demonstrations, which is a real challenge, obviously, because the most ephemeral thing in the world not a case where you can very easily and obviously turn up with a clipboard and say, excuse me, would you like to tick off my thing? Um, Yes, so many different examples there of using visual material, using digital material, using conversations, using quantitative methods, digging back into history. Because of course, movements very consciously do all of this. Movements are very consciously exploring the social world to go, what is our space of strength? Is it maybe informal conversation below the radar? As has often been the case for peasant and ethnic minority movements or women's movements. Is it to seize new digital spaces to use forms of visual creativity? There is not one kind of fixed space that movements exist in. So researchers really need to be able to think, what is what's the most important space I could look at? What are the different spaces I could look at? And then also very much to think about where do they as researchers stand in this? So how much time can you spend? How much trust can you build? how much can you understand about what you see and hear and read? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and these are all very, very practical questions. Yeah,
0: and and one of the many things that that is lovely about this is as you suggested is there's so much first person uh, in these chapters, people sort of thinking through for us how they arrived at uh, determining what they would do and how they would do it, right? So that we can really sort of see that again sort of this isn't this 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 abstract uh decontextualized things these are real humans trying to make sense of very complicated things sometimes in in spaces where they don't necessarily have an easy entree or don't walk in with prior understanding so if that's what i want to do how do i do it and to see so many people modeling that for us really is just lovely um
1: well that was really important for me and i mean for all of us and i think it's important to see this in people who are starting out research as well because yeah. if you've had that very easy privileged path through you may think oh well of course i can just walk in anywhere and That's understand right. what these people are doing i barely need to speak the language yeah, let alone have yeah. them you know trust me respect me understand the kinds of activities or challenges that they have to face on a daily basis But we were trying to imagine what's it like, because this has been all of our experiences, if you're not coming from that place of privilege. If, for example, you find academia quite intimidating, as a lot of people do, if you've got a lot of interest, but also quite a lot of respect, even awe, of the movement that you're researching, if you're not a native English speaker, if you're first generation in the university, if you're working totally outside the university, if you're a migrant, all of these things. So to try and create a situation where people could use, you know, their own natural smarts, which of course is what's got somebody to the point where they go, "Hey, I could be part of a research project." Uh, they are smart. They're energetic. They've got courage. They've got a lot of initiative. But quite often, people's experience of coming into the university from that kind of background is to be somehow disempowered, infantilized, intimidated. So if we say, OK, look, you know, imagine yourself in this person's shoes. Hopefully, uh, for some people, at least, that kind of makes it a bit easier to go, oh, I could imagine being in that situation. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, so let's turn our attention to the final section. Um, so why does all of this matter?
1: Well, if you read some people, you would think that it only matters so that we could build better theories, (laughs) which.
0: So that somebody can get tenure somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I've got
1: to say, I have an ethical problem with this. Yeah. Yeah. Because in itself, maybe, maybe uh it's not a bad thing it's maybe a neutral thing if somebody does a bunch of reading does a bunch of writing and gets a job or gets tenure or whatever it is fine but if the raw material for that is people who are desperately exploited oppressed underprivileged stigmatized and are making huge efforts in the face of for example police repression disease, environmental catastrophes or whatever to change something in their world. If you then come along and say, Oh, thanks very much. That's really useful to my career and nothing else. There is a problem. So we were really insistent that we wanted a section on, well, what actually happens when the research has been done? and I want to say, even a lot of the radical writing is quite theological about this. It says, here's my wonderful model. This is what should happen. Now, you know, you work in policy, I think you're more aware than a lot of social movement researchers about this. But, you know, a lot of people genuinely believe if they put the right words down on paper or on a screen, that it will automatically magically have an effect. And back in the day, we used to literally take people down to the basement to go, see all these theses, many of these people believe that same thing, <laughs> it's not true. Uh, so how do you make research have an effect? And that there are, I- I'm going to say very crudely, there are two different ways of thinking about it. So there's a Bunch of approaches that are broadly speaking action research approaches where the process of doing the research itself brings about change and very often that change is in the relationships within the movement within the organization so coming back to this idea of movements being learning spaces people are already thinking debating training people but typically they don't have uh, enough time, energy, money to do everything they want. So in say participatory action research, in community research and so on, one of the things the researcher does is they add oomph to that process. They give people more space, more time, more resources to think this through. So in those cases, it's less a written output that makes a difference. It's more what happens in the process.
0: And in and the, the, the I, I don't want to say purist, but I'm going to say purist, uh, purist forms of that, the 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 subject for research will not originate with, say, the academic research, but will originate with the community or the organization or the movement. So I, as an academic with the resources of my university, will show up and say, hey, how can I help? you tell me what you need and what would be useful for you rather than me showing up and saying, hi, I would like to use you as an object of research.
1: Absolutely. And then this means, for example, when the researcher comes from the movement, things are already a bit different because they've come with that question. Um, In my own chapter, and there's a chapter on the kind of Latin American origins of participatory research, there's a lot of discussion about the complexities of what happens. uh, Because if you just come to a meeting and say, tell me what to do, people will look at you blankly. So how do you, you (laughs) as I think of it, push the boat out a bit if you're not coming from that movement, sufficiently that people can think about and go, oh yeah, but And then they say back a book, which starts to get into a workable space. And there's a dialogue for researchers who aren't coming from that movement. There's a fantastic chapter there from South Africa uh, about an engagement that happened within the framework of a university course supporting uh, community-based activists who in this case, were looking at rural pollution from a mine. And they've written this together about how did that actually work, which is pure gold dust, I think, uh, if you're imagining how could you do this yourself. And then some of the other times, yeah, um, there is a product and the product takes on a life of its own. So um, Natasha Adams, who's a movement consultant, talks about this process of doing research for NGOs and what happens with it. Uh, or Steve Chase, who's a long-time nonviolence activist as well as an academic, talks about how particular ways of writing research can really land with movements or not. So those different questions of, yeah, you know, what happens with this stuff, uh, so that it's less about, as a lot of, you know, well-intentioned radical writing is i want to be a morally pure person i want to have done the most radical thing on paper and it's a lot more about that dialogue either with research participants within the movement or with people when you come and bring it to them in a group or an organization it becomes dialogical it becomes collective which of course is where the knowledge has come from It's come out of collective spaces. It hasn't come out of one person's head or a book.
0: You're listening to the Public Policy channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Lawrence Cox, who is an editor of The Handbook of Research Methods and Applications for Social Movements from Edward Elger Publishing. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us today. Much appreciated.
1: Stephen, thank you very much.